Miss the show, no problems on point. And on this podcast, the prime minister's response to those pushing back on government overreach. Well, of course, it's to implement way more government overreach with these emergency powers that go way too far and come with no due process. So we've already got laws on the books to deal with things like terror and foreign funding, but these emergency powers don't actually come with the same checks and balances. So we're going to talk about this presumption of guilt with these new financial laws and why I don't think anyone should be celebrating the destructive laws that can hit any one of you at any time and you won't have anybody to help you out of it. We'll also talk about this vicious and very violent axe attack on a group of pipeline workers in BC and of course it's met with a barely a shrug across this country. You know, Justin Trudeau insists his emergency powers are needed to stop, you know, violence, extremism and protect our vital infrastructure. So here we have an incident on part of our critical infrastructure. It's not isolated. Why is this case, why are these cases not being met with the same outrage as what happened with the truckers? We'll dive into that. We'll also talk about the worst mass killing in this country. And two years later, the families of those killed during a 13-hour shooting rampage still have no answers but they hope to get them from an inquiry that got a start today. We'll talk to the man who's been investigating this massacre and who's written a book called 22 Murders, investigating the massacres, the cover-up, and the obstacles to justice in Nova Scotia. We'll talk about why Paul Palango feels those in charge want this very much to go away. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. If Russia does not pull back... It will be met with a firm, united, and sustained response from Canada and our allies. The world's autocrats are watching today to see if our alliance of democracies has the will and the capacity to stand up for the rules-based international order. Canada and our allies are resolute in our defense of that order and of freedom, human rights, and democracy around the world. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, February 22nd. And we hit the ground sprinting into a brand new week. Great to be back with you. Great to have you here with us. And of course, some of you asking, where have you been? I hope you had a great vacation. Uh, No, I was actually filling in uh, for Kelly Cotrera for a couple of weeks. So anything but a vacation. And uh, clearly it's not slowing down anytime soon. I mean, what a what a wonky and dangerous time we are living in. So late this afternoon, the big news, of course, uh, both President Biden and Mr. Trudeau coming out and uh, responding this afternoon to Russia's invasion, kind of obvious creep into Ukraine. And I think the big question, and many are wondering, you know, are we actually going to see a war with Europe and Russia? Or will someone blink? And there have been a lot of announcements involving financial sanctions against Putin and his oligarchs. Will it scare him? I mean, it's hard to imagine that he hasn't factored all of this in. And the guy um, seems pretty determined. Not to mention crazy. Crazier. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw his speech on Monday, but he's uh, said a lot of stuff. So we are going to talk about the implications of this because it is extraordinarily consequential. And we will be impacted. Our economy is going to be hit. Energy prices will soar. And we've also got a very, very big Ukrainian community in this country. So they will absolutely be affected by what uh, could be some enormous human losses. And then you got to wonder, if the sanctions don't work, what is the next step? Like, what do you do when you're dealing with a nuclear-capable military superpower? It's not like we're just 
going in and you know dealing with Afghanistan or a, or a weakened government. It's, so there's a lot at stake here. So we will talk about this. And of course, the timing's perfect. The, I don't know. The, the prime minister's got the best timing in the world. You know, albeit I'm sure he would rather something less dangerous than uh, Russia going to war. Um, but you know, this serves up a, a very uh, nice distraction for a prime minister facing a lot of heat over these special powers. He's given himself a very political power grab, and it's not going to lead to anything good for this country. You may hate the convoy cause, but uh, emergency powers are not to be played with. They can be abused, misused. And very destructive. And I think the most frustrating thing is, you know, how we actually got to this place, which, of course, was caused by a whole lot of political games that are only going to further alienate those who are who were already frothing mad about government overreach. And the prime minister has been claiming that emergency powers were a last resort, and yet he's now using them as a weapon to solve a crisis of his own making, because, no, these powers are not a last resort. And over the last couple of weeks, we have seen police time and again solve the issues by using the laws and the books. I mean, look, you look to the uh, blockade at both Coots, Alberta, and the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. And both of these borders were cleared because the police went in and did their job. The power grab wasn't even a thing. And ultimately, it would be the police who cleared out the demonstrators in Ottawa. And did so, of course, without all the violence that we were guaranteed would erupt. And so far, unless I'm missing it, I've not seen a, a major cache of weapons that we were also assured would be amassed. And yeah, sure, the Ottawa police have been saying, well, we couldn't have done it without these emergency powers. Well, that is absolute nonsense. Because we already have agreements in place that allow police resources to be shared across different jurisdictions. Why it could not happen when it came to Ottawa is beyond, beyond me. And certainly it's a question those in charge should have to explain. Because they are to blame for where we are today. And, and they're out there right now deflecting to everybody else. But, like, why, why do we still need these powers now? And I thought for sure on Monday, okay, well, Trudeau's going to come out and speak and he'll back off. But he still insists that the powers are needed for at least 30 more days. And he wouldn't say how long. He just kept alluding to existing threats, which... That's not what the powers are designed for. They are not to be used for things that could happen or might happen. They're to be used for a dire threat to our national security right now. And even with the demonstrations in place, you know, even with bouncy castles and all the rest of it up on Parliament Hill, a lot of lawyers and legal groups didn't think that Trudeau had made the case to justify these powers. But, you know, now we have not a protester in sight. They're gone. So I don't understand why these powers have been justified at all. And so when you look at it, I mean, in this country right now, because this goes way beyond Ottawa, these powers have been handed out to police across this country to crack down on Canadians for just about anything and everything that they decide is a crime. Because the government doesn't control how or what the powers are to be used for, which is why, in part, that these measures, I think, can be so dangerous, because it can target anyone at any time, and the cops will find a reason to lay a charge. I don't know how Jagmeet Singh is justifying his support for this. It's so beyond weird that the NDP would go along with this. He's clearly no Tommy Douglas, who called the War Measures Act, uh, which was put in by Trudeau Sr. as a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. And a lot of people would argue the October crisis was more serious. And then there were a couple of uh, MPs 
liberal MPs who came out last night on Monday night saying, look, I don't agree with these powers, but Trudeau threatened to turn Monday's vote into a confidence vote. And so they had no choice but to vote, according to them, with their party to avoid an election. Again, more politics being played with this issue. And one of the concerns that comes along with these kinds of powers is that they become permanent. And on Friday, and I don't think any, a lot of people saw it, Christian Freeland said that some of these penalties will become permanent. We needed some additional tools. Now, some of those tools, uh, we will be putting forward uh, measures to put those tools permanently in place. Okay. Craft a bill, debate it, and do it properly. Because we have laws in the books already to deal with terror and money laundering and foreign funding. But, you know, sadly, no one's ever been interested in dealing with that. But my feeling is that Freeland suggesting that crowdfunding on places, um, you know, platforms or crypto platforms will be the target, which is fine. Okay. But right now, it's the convoys that are the target. But these are the kinds of powers that could go after other platforms. So if you've given to, let's say, Black Lives Matter or maybe an environmental cause. The precedent is now set. And should they turn violent, which they do, or get foreign funded, which they do, I think you have to ask yourself, are you okay with your bank account being seized because you just happened to make a donation? So this is the slippery slope. You know, the cause you support today could be criminalized and targeted tomorrow. And I think it's important to note the uh, Deputy Director of Intelligence at Canada's Financial Intelligence Agency says uh, he hasn't actually seen a spike in suspicious transactions regarding the funding of the Freedom Convoy. That could change, but so far he hasn't said that. And so what makes someone guilty here is a very good question, because we don't have a lot of clarity other than just don't support the convoy, as, as Christopher Freeland says, or as David Lamenti says, don't support Trump, which is a little vague. But at the end of Monday's press conference and before that vote was held on Monday night for these powers, I thought Trudeau said something that was um, very curious, but I think a lot of people missed. Look, in the heat of the moment, we can all get carried away trying to win an argument. But not every single conversation has to be about winning an argument. Sometimes it's more important to just be there for one another. As a country, let's aim for more decency in our public discourse, not less. Okie dokie. I mean, imagine if he had used that tone maybe, I don't know, a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I mean, imagine that. See, he had a tool of last resort. He could have used that language to create some dialogue and lower the temperature, and he chose to inflame things and now insert a, a power grab that's not justified and sets a very dangerous precedent. For anyone who is concerned that their accounts may have been frozen because of their participation in these illegal blockades and occupation, the way to get your account unfrozen is to stop being part of the blockade and occupation. Yeah, that is uh, Christian Freeland, and sorry, it is just not that simple. And the danger of an emergency power like what we are seeing is that they are often wider reaching and can, you know, ensnare a lot of people, just about anybody, and there's no due process. 
I have absolutely no problem tackling tariff funding or foreign funding. I've always been in favor of that. But the danger of these new financial penalties is that it comes with a presumption of guilt and that there are no checks and balances. Like, it's not like you can go in and appeal and there are no protections built in. So what we have is a government that's compelled banks, you know, go after anyone who may have supported this cause. But where does it stop? I mean, if you bought them a coffee or maybe you went on social media and liked their pages, is that involvement? I mean, if you went to one of the demonstrations, are, are you involved or did you just check it out? So the danger of these penalties is that they come with a presumption of guilt. And if you ever find yourself accused of a crime, I assure you, you will pray that you have process to fall back on. Matt McGuire is co-founder and practice director over at the AML Shop. You, Matt, are an expert in anti-money laundering and terror finance. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. What, when you look at these um, particular financial, um, you know, uh, penalties, sticks out to you as the biggest vulnerability or, or concern? Well, there's two. First is that um, there is no recourse built in to the legislation at all. No, no mechanisms to appeal. Um, and second is is the downstream effects. You know, we enjoy in Canada a right to um, access to basic banking services, but that goes away the moment you seem to have a history of uh, illegal or fraudulent activity in relation to your financial services. And so you might be crowded out of a bank account forever uh, because of a hunch by a financial institution. Is it okay then if I kind of uh, characterize it as like you're put on the no-fly list, uh, you know, for an airline and, and all of a sudden you can't go anywhere and it's the burden is on you to prove yourself innocent? Yeah, it, it, the, the comparison is apt. Um, the, the point is that um, every financial institution has to come up with their own no-fly list, and they have to come up with it based on, um, you know, their, their own behaviors that they, they observe. They, you know, and, and right now we're basing it on uh, lists of donors that, that were hacked off um, the internet. And um, so the problem, the problem is, is that you know you have to go to each holder of a no-fly list and try to convince them that you shouldn't be on it. Right. And the problem when a bank does it is uh, it's almost like getting the worst credit rating uh, of your life and you haven't really done anything. Uh, and I would be almost impossible then to, to clarify it. The other concern would be, what if you're in a in a couple situation where your partner went to the convoys and did some, you know, hung out or gave a donation and you had no idea, can, would they be able to go after that person's account? I mean, there, to me, there's yeah. a lot that can go wrong here. So true. And, and Finance Canada said explicitly that in the case of a joint account, um, uh, that it should be uh, frozen as well. Uh, and we're not we're not just talking about uh, checking and savings accounts here. We're talking about all credit facilities, pensions, RSPs, TFSAs. There's no limit except for life insurance that predated the order. Okay. So that's alarming. Yeah. And so when you look at what's been announced, because I think on the surface, people will automatically, uh, Matt, because everyone's so emotional about this particular issue or the cause or they're just either it's very polarizing. So I think a lot of people will look at this and say, good, serves them right. The, the way I kind of look at it, uh, maybe it's because I, co I covered so much court in my time, is that once the precedent is set, it can be very dangerous because it's the cause you hate today. But tomorrow it could be something that you're involved in that you really support. And where where does it stop? Oh, I agree. And, you know, access to banking services, you know, your lack of access to banking services is economic purgatory. You can't pay your rent. Um, you can't pay your child support. You can't, you know, um, and uh, so it, it could really impact. It could be, you know, really be impactful to, to your liberties. It's a, a, a 
terrible measure that you know, they seem to like and in in this um in this act and and the signaling that they'd like more permanent measures like this yeah but we already have, though, and, and you can speak to this. We have laws on the books to deal with terror funding and or foreign uh, foreign investment. Wh- why would they have not written the law like those? And can you explain what the difference is with those particular laws on the books now and what they're proposing here? I'm really glad you brought it up. You know, the the, the, the closest comparison to this piece of legislation is um, our legislation that deals with terrorist financing. And already... It has uh, provisions that, you know, somebody may be listed and that person's asset may be frozen. Um, But there's a whole bunch of protection mechanisms built in. And let me start with the first, which is the list. So the government publishes a list uh, based on evidence um, and and that can be scrutinized and appealed. Um, And in this instance, uh, the difference with uh, the Emergency Act is that the lists are, are can come from any government department or agency, either federal or provincial. So unofficially, any of these uh, agencies can communicate with um, financial institutions and, and others subject to the act. That means any wide variety of lists for any wide variety of, of reasons that, that fit under the very broad language um, of legislation. So you don't know which list you're fighting against. And then you have the third problem, which is that uh, as the financial institution, you're left with a definition that's beyond the list. So it tells you that a designated person um, is somebody that is is so because of their characteristics uh, or people that surround them or people that support them or people that have platforms that support them. And so financial institutions each are own, uh, on their own are left to develop the, the rest of the list uh, based on those indicators and, and on their judgment. Boy, this to me is just a walking, talking, um, you know, uh, charter challenge. I, I, but again, I, I would say that, yeah, it'll get to a, a, an upper court in this country probably. But by the time that's happened, there could be a lot of people who have had their lives completely turned upside down without actually having um, the fairness of, of, a, of an opportunity to defend themselves. Yeah, and it can be permanent damage. That's that's the the point that I'm most worried about here is that um, once you're demarketed by a bank, once they decide that you're too much of a risk or that uh, there's at least an inkling of illegal activity, they may refuse you financial services and and, uh, they have very long memories. No kidding. Well, then it it does bring an interesting uh, question. You know, we have laws in this country, uh, certainly in Ontario, where proceeds of crime can be forfeited. Um, if you've been accused of this and the banks have now shut your account and maybe your line of credit's gone or your mortgage is affected by this, I mean, could th- someone theoretically lose everything? But it wouldn't be the first time. And I, I think you're right when you compare it to court processes. The, the, the wonderful part of the, the laws are where, there are, um, where there's seizure now is that, you know, there has to be judicial authorization. A court needs to be convinced um, about right. the crime impartially. And uh, we, we don't have that here. Um, we have the inklings and suspicions of, of a financial institution. Um, you know, the, the, the point is that there is no appeals mechanism built in. In fact, the opposite, there are civil protections to financial institutions, even if they get this wrong. Boy, you know, I, I didn't like it to begin with. And now I'm just like processing it through my, my mind as you're talking. And you think of all the things that can go wrong here. And, and to me, I don't know why they went this far. But nonetheless, I'm sure it'll come out uh, in the days and, and, and weeks to follow. And I might lean on you again for your expertise. Matt, very much appreciate your time. Oh, thank you very much. That is uh, Matt McGuire, who is with the AML shop. So he's an expert in things like anti-money laundering and terror finances. So if you're good with this, okay. But just remember... <laughs> 
You won't be if your bank calls you tomorrow. I mean, one word is terrifying. Like it, it was, it was terrifying. Um, you know, to have to have somebody come at you with an axe is, you know, a, ho- a whole other level of, you know, fear. You know, you know, we're scared of darkness or you know little things like that. But you know, having somebody come come at your window and they're trying to smash right here, right by my head with an axe. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. That is the voice of a, one of 20 coastal line workers who is speaking out after being attacked violently last week by a group of axe wielding thugs who were said to be highly organized and were said to have terrorized these workers for hours, shooting flare guns at them, cutting gas lines, destroying millions of dollars of heavy equipment and even trying to trap workers in their vehicles, trying to light the vehicles on fire. But then they also attacked police, injuring one. And this is a particular gas line that has been the target of many, many attacks and blockades by environmental groups and a small group of Wet'suwet'en First Nation leaders who say that they didn't consent to the project, despite the fact that it has wide support by many First Nations groups. And so far, we've got no arrests that have been made. But, you know, here we are debating all these emergency powers and the need for them and whether or not truckers met the threshold. And here we've got an actual case, an act of violence on a critical piece of infrastructure in this country. It obviously involves violence and extremism. So why is the government not moving to stop this? Why are we so selective with our rage? Let me ask someone. Ellis Ross is an MLA out in BC. He's also the energy critic. He knows this file. Well, good to have you, Ellis. Thank you very much, Alex. Good to be here. I know you have been speaking out about this, and I did talk about this a little bit last week, but generally speaking, this is something that has been met with a shrug. Does that surprise you? No, because I've been talking about this for the last five years in terms of the political rhetoric and all the political posturing in terms of this is going to get worse if you guys keep this up. And now it's it's escalating and, you know, and now it's it's exactly what I said would be. If you continue to play politics with Aboriginal issues, there's no telling where it's going to end up. And unfortunately, you know, people are in danger of getting hurt. The prime minister did put a statement out, I think, on Friday uh, saying that he condemned this attack. Uh, but but that's as far as it goes. And, you know, here we are in this country where we are debating, uh, you know, emergency powers, why they're needed. And I look at this case and I say, OK, well, if ever there were a case where we would, you know, where we could put in uh, and use them, this would be it. I mean, it would send a message. And yet it doesn't even become part of the conversation, should it? Well, without a doubt, in fact, the last incident, because this is not the first incident out here in B.C., the last incident is what I thought was mm-hmm. an escalation of violence when they blocked the road with uh, all sorts of trees. They spiked trees with nails. They actually set a forest service road on fire. And they even actually tried to obstruct uh, RCMP members from going over the blockade. This had no place to go except up in terms of escalation because everybody turned a blind eye to it, specifically the B.C. government as well. But why? You know, he... Here we have a situation where the nation's capital has been in the news all around the world for the last three weeks. And and I've been saying on this show, 
you know, the the problem is we normalize this kind of behavior. When it, we allowed the blockades of railways, when we allowed the blockades of, of things like pipelines, Caledonia, we, we have set the precedent for where we stand now. It's just we never actually hear the government taking action. It's almost like it has to be the cause that they believe in um, and, and no others get met with this. I mean, you, you'll recall it was... Um, it was David Suzuki a couple of months ago who who made the insinuation that pipelines would be blown up. Um, again, met with a shrug. Here we have a pipeline where these workers, and to your point, it's not the first time. They have been targeted many, many times. And now we've got a case where you've got a bunch of people showing up with axes. They're terrorizing these people. Um, and apparently they can do so because no one in the government on this side of the country is going to react to it or do anything about it. Well, I can tell you on this side of the country as well, in terms of the BCNP government, they're not going to do anything about it either because they, they've been well aware of this for the past five years. In fact, the rhetoric and, and all the inflammatory language around LNG was actually, it actually came from the NDP. And now all this, all this political rhetoric is now leading to, to lawlessness out here. In fact, the lawlessness that we're talking about is actually people sitting in a truck while somebody else is trying to light it on fire. And flares being, and then think about this. People don't understand the workers on the pipeline include a tremendous amount of Aboriginal people. So mm-hmm. you're actually talking about harming Aboriginal people that actually signed lawful agreements, not only with the companies, but with the BC government and the federal government in terms of this lawful project going ahead. That's never a part of the conversation. Um, and I've heard it from you. I've had Chris Sankey on this show. I've talked to others who say, you know, a big part of reconciliation are, you know, getting our communities out of poverty. And one of the ways we can do that is by being a part of these energy projects, whether it's Coastal Link, uh, other projects that, that um, many Aboriginal groups have been behind. Why is that never a factor? Because it doesn't fit the political narrative. In fact, today in the B.C. legislature, the Indigenous minister of all people said the principle of Delgamu, the case law, wasn't actually enacted until today when the B.C. NDP came in. How incredibly condescending, patronizing, paternalistic is that? When we've been actually talking about the Haida Court case, we've been talking about Delgamu, Mikosu Cree, and all kinds of case law ever since 2004. It's actually what brought LNG to BC. It's what brought uh, forestry, what brought mining, it's what included First Nations. So this is an incredibly ignorant government, or they're just actually just doing this for political purposes and nothing else. But who would want to do business in this country, Alice? I mean, you look at this project in particular, and this um, pipeline, this this project has been, I think, the most protested in this country. It had been blockaded for months. Uh, nothing was said about it. Nothing was done. You've had these violent attacks on it. Nothing's been done. Uh, I'm just looking at communities from the outside looking in. Why would they want to do business in this country if no one's going to protect the projects or because small environmental groups or, or activist groups can can take over and hijack these projects? And, of course, they do so. Um, as you well know, because they'll bring in groups or, or people from Aboriginal communities who may be the outliers in being against them, but they still get the biggest voice. Well, nobody's going to want to do business in PC specifically. I mean, we already know the investments going out. But what gets me is that, okay, you, you don't want to ship out LNG from BC shores. Fine, great. But you're going to be okay with shipping that LNG to the United States so the United mm-hmm. States can ship out that LNG to Asia. And we see this across the board in terms of forestry products. I mean, we're shutting down forestry in BC, if you haven't heard. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually ignore the tourism industry. We don't want those uh, American ships uh, stopping mm-hmm. 
in BC ports. We don't want that. So what's left? There's nothing left. The only thing I've said is that be careful, everybody, because your sector's next. Your sector's next. And who's going to pay for this? Our kids and our grandkids, when they got no jobs and they got skyrocketing taxes, the cost of living is going to be out of control. Our kids are going to have to leave BC to find to find a place to build a life, which is absolutely sad. It's everything I stood against for the last 19 years. Keep our families together. It's- keep our communities together. Keep our province strong. What's the what's the remedy to this, Ellis? I mean, you know, there are the majority, as I understand, the majority of Aboriginal groups support these energy projects. They want these energy projects, and then along come a couple who are not a part of the voice or even the decision making, and they are able to take the narrative. And it's those people I understand that the environmentalists will kind of, I would say, use or exploit uh, so that they can they can carry out that that you know their their activism. Um, do any of these Aboriginal or Indigenous groups who, who become part of these blockades, do they walk away ever feeling like they've got answers? Or do they feel inevitably, do they turn around and say, boy, I feel exploited? And, you know, do they ever come away from it feeling like that? Well, our, our community faced the same dilemma uh, a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago. And when we found out that we were being used and our community was being torn apart, we walked away from it. We walked away from all those external people that claim to come in to, and want to be aligned with us when really they were using, using us for their own agenda. How do we fix this? Canadians have to understand the truth. They have to understand the facts of everything that happened in BC, for example, from 2004 to 2017. It wasn't the BC government that imposed LNG on First Nations. It was bands like mine who from 2004 to 2011 imposed it on the BC government. This is what people don't understand. It, it's we, we were actually trying to get an entire generation out of poverty, out of prison, out of government care in terms of our children. We wanted them to stop committing suicide. Canadians, we were on a good path. From 2004 yeah. to 2017, we were on a good path. It didn't mean more government program. It didn't mean more tax, taxation dollars. It didn't mean any of that. It was actually a really good solution to a horrific problem. Well, sadly, uh, by the time anyone wakes up and takes notice, uh, the damage, it, it will just simply be too late. And so I guess we'll uh, have to keep an eye on it. Ellis, I, I appreciate your time joining us uh, in speaking out of this, and I certainly hope something will happen here, but we'll uh, continue to shine a light on it anyway. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. That is uh, Ellis Ross, who is a BC MLA and who's been speaking out on this. And uh, again, there is one narrative that pokes through, and it is getting all the attention. It is not the only narrative. So we'll keep following him. Let's talk about the worst mass killing in this country, because no one ever really talks about it, which is crazy. It barely gets attention. And the victims have literally been left behind as they look for answers as to what happened in Nova Scotia the night a gunman disguised as a Mountie was able to go on a 13-hour shooting spree. It was back April 18th, 2020, and 22 people were killed that day. And absolutely no warning was issued to the locals by police that this was even going on. And the families of those people murdered have been utterly left in the dark with no answers and no accountability. And there's been absolutely no sense of urgency to get any answers. Maybe that's because of the pandemic, because no one's been paying attention, whatever. But two years into this thing, this is the worst mass shooting in this country, and it's barely met with a shrug. And so today marks the opening of an inquiry, an inquiry that the victim's themselves had to push for because 
if they didn't, the police were just going to do some kind of internal review, which is not good enough. Because what they deserve is to find out, you know, how the gunman got access to weapons. How was he able to kill so easily, unobstructed by police? Why weren't people warned? I mean, there's so many things that need to be answered. And yet, we're still waiting. Paul Polango is a veteran investigative journalist. He's also the author of a book that's coming out in April called author, uh, 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. He joins us now. Good to have you, Paul. Good to be here, Alex. Take me through, I mean, the inquiry is going to take weeks, um, you know, if not a couple of months to get wrapped up. But I always look at these kind of as uh, puppetry or uh, things that are made to look like actions being taken. But the fact is, no action has been taken in this particular um, crime. You have been dogged in your pursuit of finding out what happened here. What is it to you that needs to be answered? Well, what needs to be answered is the relationship, possible relationship of Gabriel Wortman, the shooter, or people around him, someone around him with the police. There's all kinds of indications that there was some sort of blown police operation here, and that's what's being covered up. And that Wortman or someone was an informant and something had gone wrong. Um, That's one way of explaining what's happened why two years down the road we've gone through all of these sort of um, different sort of uh, ruses to keep, keep, keep a lid on things and not talk about it. Um, the police in action, as you said in your intro, the police did not put out a public alert on the Sunday morning after 13 people had been killed Saturday night. Nine more were killed on Sunday morning over a five and a half hour period as Wortman roamed around the country and countryside and there was no roadblocks put up, nothing. And then when he was finally killed, um, the RCMP, you know, gave a story that, uh, uh, a, a, a quick-witted uh, canine uh, officer recognized him. They got into a confrontation and shot him. And then we obtained videotape, showed that didn't happen at all. What had happened was two policemen pulled up, saw him in a gas station, got out of the car and shot him 20 times. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing about this is, is is right. Nothing is straight. Yeah, I mean, so often in these kinds of situations, as you well know, I mean, the shield of blue goes up. And, and in this country, for whatever reason, we put up with a lack of transparency when it comes to policing issues. And, and we shouldn't. And I think we are uh, only hurting ourselves and probably why we've come to this point where we get these mass shooting um, events and then we get very little information about them. But I mean, one of the questions, and it's a pretty basic question, a lot of these people want to know is, could their loved ones have been saved um, had the police just put out some kind of warning? I mean, it's almost... It's surreal to me, Paul, that this guy could have gone around shooting and killing people for 13 hours and not once the police thought, well, you know, we should probably mention this to the locals so that they don't go out or leave their house while this guy's still on a rampage because there were people killed. Um, And so I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, had we been warned, would my loved one be alive? Well, absolutely. And that's why the the whole uh, confidential informant police agent thing comes into play. Under the RCMP manual for undercover operations, which we obtained at McLean's magazine early on in the investigation, it says uh, one of the one of the uh, things it says is contain any kind of blown operation inside. Don't bring other police forces in. It's exactly the things they did, and mm-hmm. they you know the, the the police have said, well, it's only a domestic violence case. This guy was a bad guy, and they had he and his girlfriend had a fight. And he went crazy after the fight, burned down properties, killed all kinds of people. But then their own evidence, as you're going through this, shows, well, the party uh, was turned into a virtual party. 
And then an FBI agent who investigated this in Maine said, well, I found no evidence of a virtual party. So the story keeps falling apart every way you turn. The police story keeps falling apart. And meanwhile, the government has backed the police entirely when there are all kinds of serious questions about what the RCMP did and didn't do. And yes, they could have saved lives. Obviously, they could have saved lives, but they didn't do anything you would expect from a police force. There was no uh, no attempt at preservation of life. All kinds of strange things. You know, at one point, four young kids, two age 10, two age 12, are trapped in a basement. They're the second people to call 911 that we know of. They identify Wortman as the shooter driving a police car. And the police arrive at the scene mm, 10 minutes later, nine minutes later in the neighborhood and don't rescue those kids for three hours. But meanwhile, they rescue a convicted drug dealer and his family after they're there for about an hour and usher them out of the community. Like, you see how weird this all is? Yeah. The other thing is, and, and you know, when it comes to inquiries or inquests, uh, commissions, they all sound like there's something that, that these are the things that will solve, you know, the future uh, problems or find answers for the victims. But I, I find often, um, you know, the reports are done, the lawyers get rich, and then the reports are just uh, put on a shelf to gather dust. And so I kind of see it as a lot of political kabuki theater. Do you get the sense that those, um, you know, the families left behind, all these survivors of, you know, victims that were killed, will they ever get any kind of answer? And other than, you know, political types or, or um, policing types wanting to cover their own rear end, uh, you know, will we ever actually understand what happened that night and how 13 hours went by and, and this is what the result is? Well, I'm doing my best to do it. I mean, I wrote my book mm -hmm. early in the cycle because I anticipated the inquiry would uh, try to cover all of this up. Uh, the, the mainstream media and the alternative media have done, done virtually no reporting on this um, mm -hmm. for almost two years. And I mean, mm -hmm. in my most recent story, for example, you know, the, uh, the published the other day, uh, one of the people involved in this was Gabriel Wortman, the shooter's common-law girlfriend, who common-law wife, who said she'd escaped and hid in the woods and hid there overnight and stuff like that. From the beginning, I didn't believe her story. And then I did a story the other day, which I found the receipt for a, uh, the purchase of a ring that was a subject of a, a claim she had brought in small claims court uh, back in 2010. And it turns out the receipt was written and signed by a guy who had died 113 days earlier. So now I've called into question her credibility because I've got rock solid proof that there's something not right there. So how are we going to find out about this? It's, it's just continuing to punch away. The premier of Nova Scotia today, you know, was outraged. Finally, 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 that uh, the families were upset by the lack of transparency and the suspicion that the Mass Casualty Commission was a cover-up. That's the first comment he's made. But after we've been pounding away for, you know, story after story showing uh which should have raised alarm bells in the justice system, not only at the provincial level, the federal level, about what has gone on here. And nobody's reacting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll blame the pandemic to a point, um, but but I've always been very, uh, you know, surprised, if not, um, you know, somewhat disgusted, the fact that this, this is the worst mass killing in this country. And it's really been met with kind of a shrug of indifference, um, which is not just uh, completely unfair to those who have been fighting for justice or any kind of accountability or answers. 
um, you know, so that they can move on with their lives. But the fact is that, that there is no sense of urgency to get these answers. And um, I know newsrooms have been kind of gutted of costs to look into these issues, which is, I think, a loss for all of us when we don't do it. But again, um, it, it's hard to see that justice will be done with us. Well, you know, the trigger for all of this, you know, when I look at in my one of the subtitles, the part of the subtitle of my book is the obstacles to justice in Nova Scotia, but it's really Canada. And when this happened on April 18th and 19th, um, you know, people were in shock. The RCMP seemed unprepared. But on April 20th, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, made a comment. And he said, this is the popular, the public, the fashion of the day. He said, do not give him, the shooter, the gift of infamy. Let us instead focus all our attention and attention on the lives we lost and the families and friends who grieve. And what he's saying is don't name him. So no one in the media named him, named his girlfriend, named anyone. Uh, they made the story disappear. They all just said aye aye to the prime minister and, and we're going to do what you say. Well, what, this, what has happened is that this sort of politically correct, the sort of woke thinking about uh, how to deal with public events, like terrible public events, is used by the powers mm -hmm. be, the police and others to basically hide behind privacy lies, hide behind the families. You know, that the Mass Casualty Commission that was required, that was set up, said we're going to be trauma-informed. There's going to be no um, adversarial questioning. We're not going to find any wrongdoing. It's like going to be a big hug fest with, you know, a truckload of Kleenex. Uh, and that's not the way to get to the truth. The way to get to the truth is deal with it objectively. And that's what I've done in my book. I, I'm yeah. not on one side or the other. I just totally transparent about me and everyone else and what's going on. And it's very, you know, I'd like to think it's a very un-Canadian book because it's actually pretty interesting. Well, it's unfortunate that it has to be written, but I, I agree with you. We have allowed... Um, you know, uh, uh, transparency to di disappear, much to, I think, our detriment in this country, and we should not allow it to go on. Paul, uh, we'll talk about it again, and I appreciate you um, giving us a bit of insight into this. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Alex. Anytime. That's uh, Paul Polango. He's the author of 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia, and that comes out in April, and he has been on this story since day one, and good for him to do that, because uh, it shocks me that this story has literally just gone away. So we'll uh, continue watching it and making sure that there is a spotlight on it. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.